Well, wherever you find yourself, know that we're glad you're worshiping with us today. Before we jump in, I've got a big announcement for our church, something for us to celebrate. You know, we're certainly in a unique time as a, as a, as a church uh, and in our world. Uh, we, we launched our church, and eight weeks later, we essentially uh, just shut it down. Just talking about a momentum crusher. Uh, but at the, as we said from the very beginning, we believe that God is up to something, and we can be uh, confident that God is still working, that God is still moving. I said several weeks back that I think we'll come back uh, several, I think we'll come back better and stronger than when we left. And ever, whenever we see God's hand over our church, uh, which we have seen time and time again, it's always a reason to celebrate. And I think today uh, we, could use, you could, we could use a good pick-me-up in a time like this. And uh, something that's interesting today is about the two-year mark from when me and Kelly officially uh, were approved and committed to plant New City Church. It was just uh, us. We had no team and no money. And then fast forward uh, a year, as we know, and may we not forget that God began to move mountains uh, and do what seemed impossible. As we know, God saw it fit to build a team, a great launch team, a great leadership team, and staff team. And then over the past year, we talked about how God has blessed New City Church financially in many ways, providing time and time again. Uh, and then most recently, God blessed us with a great space here at Learning Gate that we prayed for. It was a huge answered prayer for us. Uh, and then also, as many of us know, we've had one uh, big glaring piece of the puzzle that was missing a glaring question mark uh, over our church, uh, praying that God would provide someone uh, to lead us uh, through worship and music. Uh, and the Lord has been so uh, faithful uh, to provide someone week in and week out over the past year, but, but they weren't part of the church family. They were, they were coming in from the outside. This is something we've been praying for collectively uh, for, for over 18 months. You know, I've been praying for it personally for almost two years now, uh, and today is an incredible day to celebrate and announce that Jordan Slack uh, will officially be the New City Church Worship Director. You know, Jordan, uh, Jordan has been filling in for us from, uh, from time to time over the, past eight, uh, over the past eight months. But as of today, Jordan and his wife, Jen, here they are, uh, and their two boys, Asher and Justice, will, will be officially integrating into our church. Uh, they're going to be joining our groups. Uh, they're not just joining us here for a role. They're, they're joining our family. Uh, they're jumping into the trenches with us. They're, they're, they're laboring with us to advance the gospel here in Tampa and to the ends of the earth. And not only are Jordan and Jen both talented musicians, but they're a sweet family. They love the Lord. Uh, they have a gentle spirit about them. They also, they also want to see God move and advance uh, his mission here in the greater Tampa area. Uh, and something, something that's just kind of fun and encouraging to, to see uh, is that about the time we began praying, uh, fervently praying, uh, not having any idea of who God would provide for us uh, to lead us in worship through music, all the while God had also been stirring and moving in their hearts towards something. Uh, they just didn't know what it was. Uh, we had been praying, uh, and I really believe this is the Lord's doing, the Lord's stirring, uh, answering the cries of his people. New City Church, this is something for us to celebrate and to see as a small reminder that God has not forgotten us. His hand is still on our church and that God loves to answer the cries of his people. Uh, may we not forget and lose sight of how God is moving and working. Uh, brothers and sisters, uh, the Lord is continuing to build and advance his church. And this is just a small little glimpse and reminder of his faithfulness. But with that said, uh, we're going to go, go ahead and jump into God's Word to see what else God may have in store for us today. And we're going to be in Mark chapter 12. Uh, it's yet another interesting passage. 
Today's passage involves marriage, the afterlife, and a complex riddle. And when I put it that way, uh, if you were to ask my wife, this probably feels like uh, the way that I cook, uh, just a random hodgepodge of stuff, uh, which I like to call the refrigerator dump. Take whatever's in the fridge, throw it in a pan, and call it a stir fry, and and you've got some good eats. Uh, But as we know, nothing in the Bible is random. Uh, It's full of intention and purpose. And also, uh, just generally speaking, whenever we talk about the end times and life after death, people tend to turn up their antennas a bit uh, and listen a little bit more closely. So I hope that you'll do that today. Uh, But when we pair it with a good riddle, a complex string of marriages, and an antagonist, uh, it makes for a pretty interesting story. We're going to go ahead and read the entire story. We're going to look at today's drama, uh, explain it as I go, and then on the back end, uh, we're going to run towards what this passage is really getting at, and I think it's going to be really encouraging and hopeful for us today. Uh, I'm going to do something I don't normally do, and I'm going to wait and give you our big idea and our two points that we've got uh, at at the end of our time, or in the second half of our time. Uh, We're going to really try and draw out the story in the second half. Uh, I am, however... I'm going to give you a general framework for this story, uh, just something to hang your hats on while we kind of go through the story. And and, and here it is. Uh, Scene one is going to be the riddle, uh, and scene two is going to be uh, the response. And the reason I'm doing it this way uh, is because Jesus' teachings are like onions. I guess we could say Jesus' teachings are like ogres, uh, which are like onions. They have layers. Uh, I don't know if your parents ever did this growing up. Uh, or if you have a parent, or if you're a parent now, you may have done this. This is what often happens. Uh, you look at one child, you correct their behavior, while at the same time you're teaching the other kids that are looking on, that are watching, you're teaching them something a little different. Uh, both are equally important, but one is direct and one is learned uh, more indirectly. For example, uh, in the Hovis family, uh, we're a passionate people at times. Uh, we're a competitive bunch. You know, mom and dad are competitive, and so our kids get it honest, which inevitably results in a few fights and arguments among the kids. Uh, so mom and dad, when we see a fight break out, what do we do? We try to correct the wrong. But something that Kelly specifically has started to do is, that, uh, is to continually remind our kids that, hey, we're all on the same team, uh, meaning we're a family. We're for each other. We're not against each other. Uh, and so the first, layer, the first layer of this is, is correcting the fight, is correcting uh, the wrong. But the second layer is reminding everyone that's looking on, that's watching, hey, we're all on the same team. We're for each other. We have each other's backs. And so these two scenes, this, the, the riddle and the response, it's the first layer of the onion. Uh, it's what we see at face value in our passage. Uh, the second layer of the onion uh, will be built into our big idea that will come later, which I, I really think will accent this first layer really well. Uh, and so if you have your Bibles, follow along with me in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 18. This is what it says. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but, no, uh, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, uh, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose life will she be? Or whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. So I'm going to stop there uh, because we see here the first part of our drama. It's, it's the riddle. Scene one, the riddle. We've been introduced 
uh, to our antagonist. Uh, that's the Sadducees. Uh, we, have a, we have our riddle. It's, kind of, it's all blended together here with marriage and the afterlife. Uh, but something to know about the Sadducees is that we were very, uh, they were very conservative in relation to scriptures. Uh, they only accepted the Torah, uh, the first five books of the Bible, as God's word. Which doesn't give much, uh, which the, the Torah doesn't give much indication of an afterlife or angels or de- or demons, uh, and so the Sadducees they rejected these doctrines. Uh, you may have heard growing up in Sunday school that the Sadducees they were sad, you see, uh, and they get that name because they rejected the resurrection, which is which is really sad. And so it's not, it's not until later in the Old Testament in these books that they rejected when we start overtly seeing foreshadowing and a stronger indication of an afterlife. We start seeing more of a bodily resurrection. You know, most people in our culture today believe that there is something, some sort of life uh, here you know, that happens after, some sort of afterlife here on earth uh, that happens after earth, but that, but that wasn't the case with the Sadducees. By the time Jesus walked the earth, it was widely accepted that uh, there was an afterlife and there was some sort of resurrection. It was typically drawn, though, from inference, uh, from these small glimpses of foreshadowing seen later in the Old Testament after the Torah. And so right off the bat, we see in our first verse, in verse 18, it says, The Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. The Sadducees, uh, they think they've got Jesus cornered here. Uh, specifically, they think they've got them cornered on this idea of the bodily resurrection, that, people, that bodies will be raised from the dead, uh, going into an afterlife. And so they've, they've brought him a trick question showing how, how Moses has made an exception in marriage, specifically seen in Deuteronomy 25 in the Torah, saying uh, that when a man dies, his brother is to take his wife and marry her. Uh, and the Sadducees proposed their riddle, saying, uh, there are seven brothers. They all marry the same wife under this specific law that we see in Deuteronomy, essentially asking, if, if there is an afterlife, whose wife will this be? You know, which I personally think is an excellent question. It's quite the conundrum, because they're assuming they can't all be her husband, uh, while also maintaining monogamy, uh, by, by, by having just one wife or one husband. And what's interesting is that their reasoning for this riddle is not to determine who their husband, who her husband's going to be, but rather is to use as an argument for annihilation of what they believe, that there, there's no afterlife, that there's no resurrection of the dead, that there's no heaven, there's, that, all souls, uh, that, that our souls die with the body and we just vanish off the, off the face of the planet. And they're using the marriage problem here, this riddle, as proof. Well, uh, what they're trying to do is, force, is to force Jesus to say either she uh, will be married to each, uh, each of them, which goes against monogamy, uh, and would discredit Jesus, or maybe Jesus would have to devalue six out of the seven marriages, uh, which goes against uh, the exception in the law of Moses, which would also devalue Jesus, or to say, uh, you know, I guess you're right. It's not possible. So I guess the resurrection uh, is just not true which also would devalue Jesus because Jesus has already said three times about, he's already talked three times about his own resurrection. It seems like quite the pickle. And the Sadducees, they think they've got him cornered, uh, which turns us to scene two, the response. You know, what's Jesus going to do? What's he going to say? How is he going to respond? You know, I'm personally very curious of the answer, uh, not for the sake of the resurrection, for proving the resurrection, uh, when I first read this, I thought, I thought it was a great question. You know, who, whose wife will it be? 
uh, it leaves us a bit curious. There's some tension here. Let's look at verse 24 to see what he says. In verse 24 it says, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? He responds by essentially saying, you don't know what you're talking about. He said, do you not know the scriptures and do you not know the power of God? You're, you're just wrong. You don't get it, which is a pretty big statement. Saying the Sadducees don't understand the Torah is like saying people on Wall Street don't understand finance. You know, he's ruffling their feathers here. And then he goes on to answer the question in verse 25. You know, Jesus says, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. So what does Jesus do? Uh, he corrects their false theology right off the bat. He affirms that the resurrection is true, saying, when they rise from the dead. He immediately affirms it, but, but he's still left uh, with the other part of the riddle, uh, needing to answer the question, Who's, whose wife will she be in heaven? And what does he say? And when they rise uh, from the dead in the afterlife, uh, they're actually not married. Uh, which seems like a pretty big truth claim, if you ask me. I don't think that's what they were quite expecting to hear. Uh, it wasn't what was traditionally taught, uh, but this is Jesus. This is the Son of God who knows all things and cannot lie. You know, He says, uh, instead of being married in heaven, he says, uh, rather, they are like angels. He doesn't, he doesn't say they will, become, uh, they will become angels. He says they will be like angels angels. You know, we're not going to take a deep dive into the theology of angels here, uh, but there's a good reason for us to believe that when we die, we don't become angels, contrary to popular opinion. Rather, we become like angels. And so what does it mean for us to be like angels? I don't know. Uh, We need to be careful not to read into that too much. You know, some have said it's possibly our purpose of worship to give God glory will be like that of angels, or maybe our communion with God will be like that of angels. Uh, if I had to give my best guess, I would probably say our relationship with God will be like that of angels, angels in both purpose and communion, how we relate to God, uh, because he's comparing it to marriage. But the thing that I think is probably most intriguing in this verse is that we will not be married in heaven. We won't be married in the afterlife. Uh, I, I know that's a bit of a truth bomb for us, uh, but don't worry, we're going to get to that. But let's first look at what else Jesus says in our last two verses, verse 26 and 27. This is what it says, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You're quite wrong. And so in verse 25, Jesus corrects the man's view of the resurrection and answers the riddle on the complex marriage. Uh, but then in verses 26 and 27, he furthers his explanation. He, he kind of gets on their level and he gives them direct proof out of the Torah. He uses uh, what they study to further make his point on the resurrection. And I mentioned this earlier, uh, that it was widely believed that the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, did not mention anything of the resurrection. Well, Jesus just comes in and corrects that view uh, by quoting from the Torah, showing that the resurrection was there. They were just missing it. Uh, In verse 26, Jesus says, Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? Saying saying to them, hey hey guys, you are the experts here. Uh, You say there's no resurrection, but do you know this verse? Uh, have, have Have you not read this verse? 
Uh, and then he comes back and says in verse 27, he's not God of the dead, but of the living. You're quite wrong. Uh, basically saying Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know, I, I am still their God because they're living. They're not dead. They're living. That's what happens in the resurrection. Right? With Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, their souls are not dead like the Sadducees, Sadducees believed would happen when people died. No, their souls weren't dead. Their souls were living because they were resurrected. The Torah didn't overtly say they were resurrected, but the idea was there. And so Jesus answers the riddle. They thought they had Jesus cornered, uh, but Jesus proved them wrong. And that's our story. At the surface, Jesus is proving the resurrection, showing God's power to resurrect bodies and souls, showing that there is life after death. And so asking the question we've been asking, what's Jesus' purpose? We see that he came to provide life after death. And the story stops there. But we have a second layer in this story. And I want to get to the second layer of our onion. At the first layer, Jesus addresses the Sadducees. He's addressing their false teaching and understanding of the resurrection and angels and the afterlife. Uh, but then there's this second layer. The second layer of the onion has to do with this truth bomb that we kind of brought up back in verse 25 and dealing with marriage in heaven. And just as a reminder, this is what verse 25 said. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Jesus made this claim uh, and then moved on to show, that the res- to show the resurrection in the Old Testament. You know, this is, this is part of Jesus' answer to the riddle. It's the part that nobody expected. You know, I just imagine Jesus' followers uh, looking in as they watched all of this unfold, thinking, hey, you, you, got, you get them, Jesus. Uh, don't, don't, let, don't let them try to corner you like this. And then he makes the claim that people are not married in heaven. And I just imagine them saying, what, wait, did, did you just hear that? Like, did, did you just hear what I just heard? Uh, thinking to themselves, is that really true? We won't marry or be given in marriage when we rise from the dead. And for us here today, it feels a bit shocking. You know, thinking for me, I, I love Kelly. I love being married to Kelly. I love being, I, I, and I think it's kind of sad that I, I won't be her, she won't be my wife in heaven. Also thinking, uh, wait a second, doesn't the Bible speak about marriage as a good thing? You know, my initial thought is, why would God get rid of something that's so, that's so good? Well, let me correct something. Uh, God actually doesn't get rid of marriage. He'll just get rid of all but one marriage. Because as we know, in Revelation, we see the marriage supper of the Lamb, the marriage of Christ and the church. So we can be confident that marriage, what God created as good, will still exist. It will just be different and it will just be far better. Now, let me encourage you. I know at first uh, it feels disappointing, but I think this will actually be really encouraging and really hopeful. And hopefully it will be very, it will be very freeing for you as we think about marriage paired with the hope of heaven. And so with that said, our one big idea today is marriage points to the glory of heaven. I know I intentionally said a uh, big idea and not main idea like I normally do because I'm not convinced that Jesus' main purpose in this passage was to teach on marriage. I think it's more of a secondary uh, teaching in this text. But I do think as we teach on marriage, it will prop up and it will accent this concept of, of, of this primary teaching. 
Uh, not only that the bodily resurrection and the afterlife are true, but I think it will also prop up and accent the power and the glory and the hope and the greatness that can be found uh, in the fact that there is life after death. You know, I say this because marriage is intended to be a glimpse into the greatness of that what is to come. Marriage points to the glory of heaven. It's not more and it's not less. The fact that Jesus mixes together this story of marriage and the afterlife, I don't think it's an accident. It's not an accident. He didn't do it just to win an argument or a debate. He did it because it elevates the glory of the resurrection that the Sadducees failed to see. And so with the last half of our time, we're going to break this into two parts. Number one, the sign of marriage. And number two, the glory of heaven. Uh, the first part, uh, the first part, the sign of marriage will come primarily out of verse 25 and Jesus' response to the Sadducees' riddle where Jesus mentions that we won't marry or be given in marriage in heaven. Uh, we're going to look more at the implications of this truth, looking at and reflecting on marriage. And then secondly, how does this truth, you know, how does this truth of the sign of marriage, how does it elevate the glory of heaven? Our second point. So let, with that said, so let's look at our first point. Number one, the sign of marriage. And just in case uh, you forgot or you, you weren't aware, signs are actually really helpful. Uh, they're, they're for our good. They're informative, informative. They point us to something. Now, if I undervalued a sign, you know, I, I would just ignore it. Maybe I would vandalize it, maybe change the direction of the sign or possibly just run over it uh, and just demolish the sign altogether, uh, completely losing its, its ability to do what that sign was intended to do and designed to do, which is what typically happens in our culture with the sign of marriage, which brings us to our first subpoint on marriage. Uh, I've, got, I've got two subpoints here. 1A, marriage is good. The sign of marriage is a good thing. We see this all over the Bible. When God created marriage, he created it to be good. In Genesis, God looked and saw that it was not good for man to be alone. God created marriage for our good is to be enjoyed. You know, a couple chapters earlier in the book of Mark, in Mark 10, Jesus said, and speaking of marriage, what God joined together, let not man separate. You know, there's a covenant of marriage that God created as a good thing that points to his covenant with his people. Marriage was designed for our good. Marriage was designed to point us to Jesus. We see in Ephesians 5 that the purpose of marriage is to display God's sacrificial love of Christ in the church to the world. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. It's a good and it's a beautiful thing. But what we need to understand is that marriage is a sign. And, and, and signs are good, but signs are not ultimate. You know, if I took you to the Grand Canyon and stopped at a sign... Uh, before you saw the Grand Canyon and said, look at that sign, that's a beautiful sign, that's a glorious sign, and then turned around and left and you never saw the Grand Canyon, uh, I would be overvaluing the sign and undervaluing the Grand Canyon. The sign's job is to point to the Grand Canyon. And so on one side, we can undervalue the sign of marriage, uh, forget that it's a good thing, which we see every day in our culture, and it's tragic because marriage is good, and it's beautiful, and it was created by God. But then on the other side, we can overvalue the sign of marriage, idolize it. And in our passage today, Jesus is gently kind of poking at the overvaluing of marriage, showing that marriages are good, but they're not eternal. Uh, we hear often in the Christian world, marriage is forever, uh, which as we see, it, it's partially true, 
Marriage is meant to be forever in this life, uh, but as we see from our passage, our marriages are not eternal, uh, which leads us to our second subpoint. Uh, 1B, marriage is good, but it's not ultimate. The purpose of marriage is to point us to what is ultimate. The point and purpose of marriage is to point us to the redeeming grace of the gospel, is to point us to the marriage that is to come, when, where Christ comes in. Right, the marriage that is to come is where Christ comes in and redeems his church and his people, bringing in them together in union forever. You know, our marriages were designed to be a sign of Christ in the church, of the redemption of Christ in the church that we see in Revelation 21 and 22. But when we, what can often happen is that when we can become so focused on marriage or the longing of marriage, if we're not married, uh, making marriage ultimate, and, as, and we start to lose sight of what is ultimate. And we start to lose sight of the purpose of marriage. We see this all the time in our culture. Uh, people will say things like, uh, you know, I, think, I think he or she is my soulmate. Uh, or people will say things like, uh, he or she, they, they complete me. And I get it. It's, uh, it's cute and it's, and it's not always bad. Uh, but when we, what can often happen in this stream of thought is that they're elevating that person to being ultimate, as ultimate. You know, I love Kelly. But Kelly is not my soulmate, and Kelly doesn't complete me. That's a burden that only God can carry. You know, most problems uh, in our marriages and relationships are, are, not the re- are not the relationships. It's our misguided attention. Marriage is, is not meant to be face-to-face. And, and this is what I mean by that. Uh, it's, that. It's not meant to be ultimate. It's not meant to be focused on each other. It's meant to be side-by-side focused on Jesus. You know, and if, if you're not married, you know, some of the best advice that I can give you is to run really hard after Jesus and then look to see who's running hard towards Jesus right beside you and then just go uh, marry that person and continue running towards Jesus together, keeping the focus off of yourself and off of your relationship uh, and, and focused on Christ. And if you're running towards Jesus uh, and they're not keeping up or they're not running with you, they're not for you. Something that people often say is, you know, I'm, I'm focused on my family or, or focused on our marriage. And I get it. Uh, the intent is good. We want to make our marriages a top priority, uh, a, a, a priority. But primarily focusing on your marriage won't make your marriage better. You'll just become more consumed with yourselves and lose the design and intent and purpose of marriage. You don't focus on your marriage. Focus on Jesus and the marriage will follow suit. Most marital problems uh, are not marriage problems, they're God problems. They're they're misguided worship. People argue and fight and can't get along in marriage because two people are coming together uh, that worship themselves. You know, every day sin, uh, it creeps, it comes creeping into our houses. You know, if both husband and wife are seeking to honor the Lord, fighting for the sacrificial love that Jesus modeled for us in the gospel, you know, fighting against the sin in our own hearts, both of us, uh, our marriages will follow suit. It won't, be, it won't be perfect because we live in a broken world. But generally speaking, when we focus our attention on Jesus and not our needs or our spouse's problems, we begin to see a sign, to, we begin to be a sign to the world, uh, to what is ultimate. You know, our, our, marriage, uh, our marriages start pointing as a signpost. When, this, when we start doing this, it start pointing as a signpost to what is to come. We don't We don't long for the sign. We long for what the sign points to. We have to get this. Marriage wasn't made for us. Marriage was made for God. When we look back at this truth, 
uh, that Jesus said on marriage, how there, won't be, how there won't be marriage in heaven. It serves as a reminder to us that we were not made for our spouse, we were made for God. Our, our marriages here on earth are for our good, but they're not for us. It's for God. You know, if God made our marriages for us, then it would be carried into eternity with God. But we weren't made for marriage. We were made to be with God. We were made with a longing for marriage. We were made for the desire of it. Uh, but it's ultimately, that desire is ultimately a taste for the longing uh, it's design, that it's designed to point to. You know, our, our earthly marriages don't enter eternity because we're, uh, we're with God. The sign, the sign of our earthly marriage is no longer needed. Like when we're with God, our sign, that sign is no longer needed. Which leads us to our second and last point, the glory of heaven. I want to make a few observations here just to, just to point out. Uh, Jesus did not say in our text that you won't be with your spouse in heaven uh, or that you won't know your spouse in heaven. Uh, Jesus said you won't have marriage with your spouse in heaven. In heaven, there'll be no need for, uh, for procreation. Uh, there'll be no need for companionship because we will have God's perfect companionship. Although I still think we, we, we will still have companionship because we see in the book of Revelation that people will be with each other from all over the world. And God designed us for companionship, but we won't have the need for it because we will never experience loneliness. We will never have any sadness or voids we're trying to fill. God will fill every single one of those needs for companionship. And what... I think what happen in our, in our relationships uh, with our spouse in heaven, we, uh, we, have, we have good reason to believe that we will know them, that we can be with them, uh, but in a redeemed state without any sin or jealousy or bitterness or envy or pride, uh, while at the same time God will be completely dominating our affections and God will completely be dominating our attention. But what often happens though uh, when people hear these verses, uh, this concept that you know, this this concept that we won't be married in heaven. Uh, people who are happily married will uh, will sometimes say, "If if marriage isn't in heaven, then I don't want to go." Uh, well, it sounds sweet at first, uh, but it's it's a complete misunderstanding of both God and marriage. Uh, but what I may have to say and reply back is, I certainly don't think you want the alternative. Uh, you know, C.S. Lewis was helpful on this. Uh, specific, specifically in our disappointment to the lack of marriage in heaven. This is how he explains it, and, and this, is, this is my paraphrase. paraphrase. Uh, when a child discovers the pleasures of chocolate, uh, they love it. Right? They, they want it. Uh, they don't want to give it up. They want it all the time. And then that child begins to hear about the pleasures of marriage, specifically sex. They ask, well, does it come with chocolate? If it doesn't come with chocolate, I don't want it. Uh, but the picture he's painting here is that the pleasures of chocolate for a child serve as a small glimpse of the pleasures of sex and marriage. It's the only thing that that child can compare it to. Uh, and just like the pleasures of chocolate are a small foretaste of the pleasures of marriage, the pleasures of marriage are a small foretaste of the pleasures of heaven. You know, it's a, it's a prelude to what's to come, it's, yet it's going to be infinitely better. Uh, to be disappointed that we won't be married in heaven, I think is normal if you love your spouse. But let the love you have for your spouse serve as an incomparable reminder of the greatness of the glory of heaven. Uh, it will be far better. You know, our, marriages on, our, our marriage on earth is a placeholder for our marriage in heaven. It's a placeholder for the only marriage that we will see in heaven. The marriage of Christ and his church. The marriage that is to come. The eternal marriage. 
just think about this. Let, let this encourage you. John, John Piper was really helpful for me on this. Uh, you know, I won't, I won't be married to Kelly uh, in heaven. But we will both be married uh, as the bride of Christ, as the church, to God, together. Right? We, we won't be married, but we will be part of the same marriage. We'll be part of a better marriage, a perfect marriage. That God, uh, the, the God that joined us together in marriage on earth, the God that sent his son Jesus to save us, to redeem us, that pulls us out of our broken, sinful lives, the God that, that washed our sins clean, washed us clean, declaring us and making us new, the God that worked in each of our lives to grow us, to work through us, to guide us and lead us, to fight for us, the God that fought for our marriage, the God that brought us together here on earth to make us a sign, a sign of love and redemption and forgiveness and sacrifice. Certainly we're not perfect. We're far from perfect. We're an imperfect sign. But, he, but God brought us together to be a sign, to point others to Jesus to be assigned to the ultimate marriage. God worked in us and saved us so that we could be assigned to our kids, so that we could be assigned to our neighbors, our friends, our church, and to the world. God saved us and redeemed us and joined us together to be assigned on earth, which is so good and so encouraging for us here now on earth. It's something for us to celebrate and rejoice. It's a privilege. It's for our good. But it's just a foretaste. It's just a glimpse it's just a sign. But when we get to heaven, when we're with God in heaven, when we're sitting at the marriage supper of the Lamb, I think we'll be able to be sit, I think we'll be able to sit beside each other and rejoice with an unspeakable and unimaginable joy because when we get to heaven, we will no longer be a sign. We will become what the sign was pointing to. The sign of marriage points to the marriage of Christ in the church. And if we are in Christ, that's us. We're the church. We know we're no longer a mere sign that points to the glory of God. We have been joined in marriage to the glory of God. We'll no longer be an imperfect signpost. We will be joined in a marriage union together as the church to Christ himself. Brothers and sisters, this is not something to mourn over. This is something to rejoice over. We will, be, we will be led into the reception and leaping and dancing and singing and rejoicing. What an unbelievable hope and joy. The hope of heaven, the glory of heaven is that we will be married into the glory of God. What good news we have that the resurrection is true. What a great hope we have in the hope of heaven. That there's something better than what this world can offer or even imagine. You know, one commentator said, trying to explain the glory of heaven uh, is like trying to explain the beauty of a sunset over, a grand, over the Grand Canyon to a baby in utero. Uh, it's nearly impossible. We don't, have a, we don't have a category for it. But what we know from our passage today is that we don't just die and disappear. No, as Jesus said in verse 27 when he said, He is not God of the dead but of the living. What we know about the glory of heaven is that we will be with God. We will be living, as it says in verse 27. We will be living in the full presence of God himself, which is the best news of heaven. We will be with the God who made us. We will be with the God who designed us, who created us, who saved us and redeemed us. Every, every longing we've ever had in marriage that was never fulfilled either by our spouse or by the spouse that we never had. 
It will be met and it will be filled with exponential and unimaginable glory by the perfect groom of Christ himself. And so the question we must ask as we close out our time is will you be joined in marriage to God's glory for eternity? The Bible is clear and it only comes through trusting in Jesus. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus, I pray that you would because it comes with an unbelievable future hope. And then also, something for us all to consider. If you are married, consider the privilege we have in pointing others to the glory of God in the gospel, of pointing to the marriage that is to come, of the, of the great joy that we have of being a small glimmer, being a foretaste of the marriage of Christ in the church that will fully display God's glory. And then but for those that aren't married, are you longing for the earthly sign of marriage more than what the sign points to? The sign is good, but it's not ultimate. May we all continually look to Jesus who is ultimate. Let's praise God for the great hope that comes with the resurrection. Let's praise God today for the hope of heaven. Let's pray. Father, you are good. Uh, you are over all things. You're over our life. Father, you're over uh, our life after death. Father, we can rejoice today if we are in Christ. We can rejoice that we have an incredible future hope, a hope that spurs us on, a hope that helps us to endure. Father, a hope that helps us uh, fight for our marriages here on earth, uh, to help us, it reminds us to be assigned to what is coming uh, to the marriage supper of the Lamb, the marriage of, of Christ in the church. Father, I just pray and ask that you would uh, come in, you would help us be a place of healing uh, for marriages, that you would help New City Church be a place of, of uh, longing um, for, for seeing Christ in the marriage supper of the Lamb, that we would all be signposts of something that is much greater. We ask this all in Jesus' name.